right, let's start the fucking show, eh? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. everybody to another episode of the no name pod i am once again joined by my good friend wasted wasted how are you uh good evening i've got a beer uh, yeah i said that i'd try and open a, a like a bottle of beer on the show instead of a can see what the sound like i don't know if that if you've got anything there oh you hear anything I think, I think we got it i think we got it good job that's a, um, a shout out to a, a friend of yours, I take it, right? Uh, just a, somebody from Argentina or something about the show. Perfect. Uh, and he was saying he likes beer too. <laughs> 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 and why do I, why do I drink it in Cannes? Do you know, you know where I am in the part of the world that I am in, in Canada, Alberta? It's it's only cans of beer here. Uh, bottles of beer are ridiculously expensive, and nobody buys them. Uh, it's all cans. Everybody drinks cans here. I don't remember the last time I had a bottle of beer. Well, I don't remember the last time I had a beer, but um, let alone a bottle of beer because it just it's it's not something out here. Yeah, it's it's really expensive here. That's why it's a it's like a two fifty for the bottle of this bottle of Corona. Right, uh, cans are like a, a dollar. So yeah, I was getting the pint can uh, so this is like a bit of a luxury it is christmas <laughs> there you go merry christmas <laughs> so thank you everyone for tuning in once again we're really excited to be here uh it's it's been a couple weeks since we've done a show we hope you enjoyed the last one it was um uh, really fun to do, and I'm always loving doing the shows with wasted. We have a pretty good topic tonight that i have been wanting to do for a while. It's just never uh, been able to to come to fruition. I originally wanted to do this with uh, the old podcast, The Cookout. This was an idea that Rob brought to me. I'm giving him a shout out because I asked him to come on tonight and he didn't want to. Uh, he was, well, I shouldn't say he didn't want to, but he was uh, uh, busy doing something else tonight. So uh, I figured I'd give him a shout out because this was his original idea and I thought it was a really cool idea and it's been something that we've wanted to do for a while. So we're going to talk about deals with the devil and whether that's deals in real life or deals in movies and film and television or even music. It's an interesting topic and there's lots and lots of stuff around it that we can uh, dive deep right into. And I think we're going to start off with... There's there's a couple very famous deals with the devil. I think the the most popular one that everybody knows is Robert Johnson and his deal with the devil. Now we're going to get into that, but first up, we're going to talk about the Flying Dutchman and the story of the Flying Dutchman. It's it was a a, a ship that was struggling to uh, the sea captain was struggling to. Um, round the Cape of Good Hope during a uh, during a storm, and 
he couldn't he couldn't navigate it around. So he made a, he made a plea basically, uh, and the devil himself heard this plea and agreed to help out the captain of this ship to get him around this this uh, Cape of Good Hope. And but the 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 caveat was that he had to uh, sail until Judgment Day, or if he could find a woman that loved him for a life without being promiscuous or cheating on him. So he sailed and sailed. The 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 hook though was sorry I missed a really important part there. The hook about this was that he could only stop sailing once every seven years to go ashore and find that true love. So. Here he is sailing aimlessly seven years, finally gets to go to shore, and he meets a woman. Uh, her name is Senta. And she says that she's going to love him forever, and she's going to be faithful to him, and therefore the curse will be broken, and he'll get his soul back, and he'll be able to come on, back on Earth. So this goes on, and uh, he it, it's the daughter of uh, Daland is the man's name, and he's the captain of a Norwegian ship. That's where uh, this captain uh, met. They so it was his daughter, and and they they start they form a relationship, and it's time for him to go back to sea. And she professes her love again, once again, but he, he's fearing that she's been unfaithful to him, so he accuses her of that, and he he storms off, goes out back out to sea, and she goes out to the rocks. And says that I will profess my love for you to the end of time. And she jumps off a cliff and therefore breaking the curse. So he's free to come back on, but he loses the love of his life. And now from that, um, I think I got it pretty good right there. Wasted, what do you think? Yeah. I think, yeah. 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 So from that, it spawned uh, many legends and myths and stories about the Flying Dutchman, and of course, I mean, we're talking about art, we're talking about uh, television, we're talking about comics, music, radio, everywhere. The Flying Dutchman is probably the most popular one. Like, I would say it rivals uh, Robert Johnson, but it's definitely, definitely popular. It's been everywhere, and there's been ghostly sightings of the Flying Dutchman ships. Uh, I'm going to let Wasted take over a little bit on this and, and start talking about more about the, the, the mythology side of it, and from the... I think the English point of view, correct? Uh, yeah, so the British, uh, the British sort of uh, perspective on it. Uh, uh, I mean, I was watching a documentary, and it was uh, it was uh, from a, it was a uh, with, uh, they had a Dutch intellectual on there from university or something, and he was saying that it it wasn't really a Dutch law, you know, it was a British story that they had created, and uh, you know, it's it's really all about the the Dutch East India. Uh, you know, shipping company uh, and the uh, the Anglo-Dutch wars around 1666. I mean, they would go. I mean, it's quite far in our terms from from Netherlands, the Holland, down to the you know the Cape of Good Hope, which is like the bottom of South Africa. So it's quite a long way. Uh, but yeah, these boats they would they would all go they would go missing as they were going through these rough seas. It was very dangerous trip to make to make it all the way around this the cape of good hope uh to, you know to get to basically uh asia where everything you know that's where all the uh, the riches were the treasure and the you know that was the travel route basically but yeah it, because of these different uh, i was watching this documentary was saying like you know one year was like 11 disappearances of ships another was like 22 and it, it went on for a few years i think this is where you get these like folk tales 
uh, or folklore started to grow up around it. So that that's uh, where the, that's where the, these stories started to originate from. It's around that time, and um, and also at the same time as in like 1666, there was this because of this Dutch uh, Anglo-Dutch wars which were going on because the Dutch were a rising empire, and they were always fighting with the UK, uh, with the England or Britain, British. But in 66. 1666, there was this great fire of London, and one of the stories surrounding the, the Flying Dutchman is that you know, it was starting in a bakery, they said, but there was a lot of people who thought that the baker was Dutch, and he started the fire on purpose, and the fire like, took out like 80% of the city or something, and they, they always called it, it was like a softening before an invasion by the Dutch. But there's also another theory that it was a Catholic that had started, that you know, they wanted the downfall of the Protestant nation. But this story, this is where, it, from a British perspective, this is where this story started. It was like a British invention. It was because of the, the Dutch naval supremacy in the area was kind of waning that the British like people accepted this story as a ghost ship, as it was a ghost, it was weak, it was disappearing. So the ghost makes sense because this audience understands that the Dutch East India Company has become something of the past. So that's, that's like what led to it. I mean, like you said, there was loads of sightings. Like, there's a famous one in the UK, uh, Brit uh, British, uh, King George V. There's a story there. And that, that, that included the mirage theory, or the Fata Morgana, that in that area down by South Africa, there was like, the, I think it's the hot air of the sky, because it's always really sunny in those pirate movies, then the cold sea created a kind of reflection or a refraction, so that the, the ships, would then it would then produce a mirage or image floating above it or to the side of it, and that's what a lot of the sightings from the sea, from the shore and these these story, these sort of thing kind of um, uh, reinforced the folk tales of all the, the the ships. You know, where did they disappear to? They just you know, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. But yeah, the story one of the most famous stories, the real story from the 17th century, was a Dutch captain Bernard Folk. Uh, and he's like the model for the captain of the goat ship, uh, of the ghost ship. Like you were talking about the guy who's like uh, asked out for the devil to help him or something. You know, yes, please, I'll do anything. That guy. Yeah. Uh, but that was always like word of mouth folklore tales. But what it, it was the British, like this Dutch intellectual saying, it was the British who they published the first legend of as a story in uh, Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine in 1821 which is quite a long time, you know, 1666 is where it all started, this kind of like propaganda against the Dutch with these stories. And also they were playing, you know, at that time, people were very superstitious. But yeah, they, they came up with this, the British came up with this story, Captain Henrik van der Decken. And this is the story that took off in a sort of popular culture way. So that's the part of the story as in from the folk tale to the actual I don't know it's not a not a myth because myths are more about gods and sure he's not here he's not a hero he's not like a, a legend so it's just a, a sort of folk tale ongoing folk tale uh, it's it's I, it's definitely a folk tale but there's I think the story is real right but it, it's like you said it's gone from being a simple story about a Dutchman that was 
struggling at sea to to get to port and yeah. ask the devil. And I, 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 I've forgotten in all this it, what you said is the year that it happened. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was uh, 1666, right? It was 1666, yeah. right? It's the number yeah. of the beast. And like you said, people were very uh, superstitious at that time. With everything, like there's sightings that's happened, and the the refraction, reflection, mirage um, theory is also is that's very cool because I would I would love to see that. I've never I've never seen something like that. I would think it would be really cool to see. You know, it makes sense because people didn't have the technology that back then that we have today. And you know, when you see something like this, it's it's going to send people into a, a frenzy, right? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's definitely something that. Uh, I mean, it was a real thing way before um, the British like turned into a story, and then that is what led to it being more sort of uh, ingrained in our culture now. But it doesn't mean that it it wasn't a real thing back in the 16, you know, in the 17th century. I mean, there was a, a legitimate, you know, the Bernard Fopp guy, the Dutch captain. He was a real person, and he, he he's right. the one that they based the story on. Right. But it happened. The, all these ships were disappearing all the time. So, in a, in, you know, so there was a lot of evidence to support that, you know, you know, they'd seen this ship and there were a lot of sightings. So that's way before the, but the British, you see, there's a point made by the Dutch is that the British made uh, sort of kind of popularized it in culture for their own ends. And that's why we talk about it more now. The Dutch wouldn't really want, weren't really that bothered about this story. It was more down down on the South African Cape of Good Hope area, right? But it, it was definitely a real uh, uh, story, you know. And there's no way of proving it. True. Time. I mean, there's no satellite. No. <laughs> now, even some of the reported sightings you touched upon, King George the Fifth. Um, yeah, he he saw it with I believe he was with his uh, brother Prince Prince Albert, Victor of Wales. Yeah. You know they saw some some red light. Of course it was red lights that they saw in the fog, right at four a.m. when, you know it was it was a stormy night or it was a foggy night, right? I like this story. What do you think of this story? Yeah, I like it, and it's also, um, I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff about the British taking it on. And, uh, nor did I. Yeah, nor did I. The, you know, the actual turning it into a story. Before that, it was all tales, and, and you know, it's even in Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, but one of the yeah. one thing I, when I was reading about this kind of ghost ship, I, I thought of uh, you know, flight uh, MH370. Yeah. I was like, is that is that a flying Dutchman? An example of a flying Dutchman? It's like a possessed you know, ship or something. We should do a show on MH370 one day. Uh, maybe in the next couple shows we'll do one because there was all that. We're getting sidetracked here, but there was all that info that came out a few weeks ago about the orbs uh, surrounding the plane and stuff, yeah. and then it disappearing. And did you see today that they basically? Well, I don't know if it was today, but it was either like this week that that was basically debunked, right? Like it's fake. Oh, all that. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Actually, Forbes' theory is he's very adamant about that. And it yeah. all kind of rests on that, whether that picture is uh, sim simulated or fake or not. Like, so a lot, we'll a get lot into that. On a, we'll yeah. get into that on another episode. I, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but uh, getting back to the Dutchman, I I like the story. I think it's a fun story. Um, 
it, it the 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 original ending where uh, his his wife or fiance girlfriend jumps off the cliff and kills herself, but in turn frees him is a is a happy sad ending, right? There's the sadness obviously of of her dying, but the happiness that he gets his life back, right? It's not it's not your typical deal with the devil. You're in a predicament or you want something or you need something and you you call upon the devil himself and he appears and you make a deal to sell your soul and he gives you X number of time to to live out your life doing what you want to do. And then the time comes when he wants to collect and then you go to hell, right? That's that's yeah. when you think of a deal with the devil, that's basically the formula. And this this one strays a little bit from that formula. So I kind of like it's it's different and it's fun. No, there's also so many aspects to it. Exactly. Like kids can get into it on the sort of like Spielberg, you know, possessed ghost ship, just gets kids into it. But then there's a lot of history and all this, um, you know, the the folk uh, or the myths and legends element of it and all the, the Anglo-Dutch history. So, but yeah, it's a more interesting story than just the straight de- deal with the devil. That's it's right. A sort of caveat to it and... I don't know where this, where the best, um, is this, you know, the best version of that story? I don't know. I don't know where that is. You know, like I've heard of this Captain Hendrik van der Decken, which was, you know, in the story in 1821, but I don't know if that's the best version of the story. And also Wagner turned it into a, uh, an opera. An opera. Yeah, exactly. That might be the, well, maybe the pinnacle of the actual you know, the story, but I don't know what's the best version of it. The, uh, the story I told at the beginning of the show was actually, um, a kind of schizophrenic synopsis of <laughs> Wagner's opera. Like that's, that was, oh. that's what it was about. Right. Okay. So when you say getting the kids into it and everything, there's nothing, there's nothing cooler. Even as an adult, when you see this gloomy looking vessel with black masts and blood red sails pull into, you know, a dock like that's that's just, you know, something cool is going to happen. Something epic is going to happen when you see this this monstrous, gloomy looking ship pull in. Right. I mean, it's 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 just, you know, you're in for a good story. And I think they did it really well. It works on all, all levels, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just the, like the concept of it is that can be quite could They could make a very scary movie out of it. It could also the, make a very funny movie. Yeah, like Pirates of the Caribbean had some element of that, I think. I think maybe only just the name of one of the characters that was called like Deppin or something. I can't remember now. And also because of it's such a, at that time, they weren't writing everything down. There's a lot of possibilities. It's kind of in contrast to what our next story is, I mean, along the lines of the deals with the devil, and I alluded to it at the beginning of the show, and it's the Robert Johnson story. Now, in a nutshell, this is a story of a man named Robert Johnson. He was uh, worked on a plantation, and he desperately wanted to be a blues singer, or a blues guitarist, I should say. Now, <clears throat> the problem with that is that he didn't know how to play guitar or he played guitar very poorly. The legend was that he was told by some of the other plantation workers or might've even been one of the masters. I'm not sure, but he was told to go to this 
um, crossroads and ask for the devil. And the devil came in and he tuned his guitar and played it and then gave it back to Robert Johnson. And all of a sudden, Robert Johnson was this masterful guitar player. So we returned back to the plantation and uh, everybody was like, oh, whatever. And then they, it was the story of like he started playing. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, my God, this guy's great. So from that, I mean, if you dig a little bit deep into deeper into it, it's basically the story of Faust, right? He's a German legend based on uh, Johann uh, Georg Faust. He's a highly success- successful um, man who's very dissatisfied with his life, which leads him to make a pact with the devil at a crossroads, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. Obviously, you replace the worldly pleasures and knowledge with the guitar playing, and, and you have the Robert Johnson story. So what do you think of this one, Wasted? Well, I, in one of the documentaries, I saw um, the Faust like, had this tower, and there was something like, to do with his fireplace or something, that it, it, his soul was taken, or did his body go up the, up the chimney? I think it was his soul. I know, believe it was, this, yeah. I forgot what the town's called. It started with an M, like Mordor or something. Uh, just, and that's where he that's where he lived, I think. And they've got the they've still got this house where he lived. Like you said, he's quite uh, successful because this house is not like normal. It's kind of like a heart, It's like almost like a short tower. Um, but in terms of uh, the Robert Johnson, like, like I watched the um, the uh, Devil at, at the Crossroads documentary on Netflix, and uh, somebody there, somebody on there, it was a one of the blues players who played with. Um, uh, Robert Johnson, he was saying that, you know, people say that uh, the blues music came from the church, and he was saying it didn't. It came from the came from the fields, you know. It came from the slaves in the fields. And then it kind of, because I'm, like, looking at it in terms of, like, these myths and legends, uh, to me, it, it seems like the, they kind of, like, demonized. They did, the blues was a way for the slaves to all, like, gather around, gather together. And if you were a slave owner, you wouldn't really want that to happen. Absolutely. You wouldn't really want them to have their own music where they like complain, basically, the blues. They're singing about how sad they are, and then they're also partying or drinking themselves to death. So the blues was like demonized as a music. And, um, and this is where I think the, the kind of uh, myths and the legends part. Legends are like heroes. Uh, but because the... Because the, the you know the the slave owners they they had the church, so basically I think the the blues players and the slaves they had the devil, so it's a very like superstitious time, so that's why they they and they would call the blues the devil's music, but it's it's more that they were like demonizing, you know don't go and don't go and hang out with the slaves and and listen to that you know devil's music they're basically demonizing the music, so so their hero became this kind of. Uh, he did a deal with the devil to, to be kind of like a supernatural or superhero for the slaves. That's what Robert Johnson was. He, he learned, he did his deal, and he became like this kind of uh, superhero for the for the blues music. So that's how it, you know, when I look at it in terms of like leg, you know, myths and legends, I think that's how it how it would come about. And as I say, uh, in the same way as there's no satellites in 1666. You know, it's hard to prove that, you know, which stories so, are true. Like when he goes down there, they said he came back 
and all of a sudden he could play. You know, like he was yeah. an amazing guitarist, but he wasn't to begin with. Yeah. But, you know, but different accounts say that he was he was always focused on it, and he never did any work that would threaten his hands. And he was very young. I mean, he died when he was twenty six, seven. So he's like part yeah. of that part of the twenty seven club. And if I think, think he was the it, first all, member. I think that he was yeah, the the first invented. member of the twenty seven club. Yeah, but if you think about it, all the people in the twenty seven club, like. Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin, Morrison, et cetera, they're all kind of, um, uh, they all kind of had their music demonized at the time. Sure. So I'm just going to sidetrack here and talk about why, because it's called the devil's music, right? The blues is called the devil's music. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but it there's definitely a connection here. In the 19th century, uh, the English phrase... Blue Devils, it referred to hallucinations brought on by alcohol withdrawal. And so this was later shortened to the blues, and it describes a state of depression and upset. So uh, the blues music is the Blue Devils. So there's, there's the connection there, if you look at it from that standpoint. I don't know how much of it... I don't know how much of it um, coincides with each other, but uh, it was la- it's like it was later adopted as the name for the melancholic song and the musical genre that encapsulates the the blues music, right? And, and then it's also it's low down music played by rural blacks, which you also were alluding to um, on the plantation stuff, and it brought them together, and it was it was considered a sin to play this low down music. And, you know, the blues was the devil's music. So it's a little bit of history there. I don't know really how much it goes together with why it's called the devil's music, but it makes a little bit of sense. What do you think? Yeah, well, there's, there's two parts to it. It's the sort of the fact that it's kind of a dangerous, you know, lifestyle at the time and also like a demonized group. But these stories that, they, you know, the, the myths or the, the legends, I, I looked into you know the basics of it, and they're always told to like educated, or it's like a shared experience. So the blues is sort of like their shared experience, and that's why these kind of like folk tales and uh, they they sort of come together. They sort of basically is it's sort of like the downtrodden, like a lack of hope. That's what the blues uh, came, and that's a very like a dangerous. Uh, Thing. So they kind of they kind of demonized the, the blue. So I mean that came came to the same thing. They need a super. They sort of needed this supernatural hero to, to help them, and and that's why maybe the the story of Robert Johnson kind of grew up. It's almost like you know like marketing or something in the 90s uh, music industry. You know you've got to have a good story because at the time he was quite a he was like a quite a cool guy. <laughs> Like he was really young though, but you know he married that 16-year-old's wife, uh, and then she died died in childbirth, and then he 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 got another girl pregnant, and then married somebody else and moved to the Delta. So he right. was in high demand, like touring. He was quite successful. Like you know when he was, get, you know even around the point of his death, he was he was at the height of his fame. Uh, he was touring with like you know people like Sonny uh, Sonny Boy Williamson or something. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, they're not like they're not like nobodies, and everybody said that he was an amazing guitarist. But, which is nuts. I mean, I, which is nuts because he couldn't play, but then he could. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Now, so that's what I was thinking. Maybe it's just a story that they told that maybe he did go away for a bit and get better. But it seemed like he'd been playing since he was born. Like, you know, they have pictures of him sitting at the table with his family or other slaves. He didn't do slave work in the fields. He only played guitar. So that might... But that, be... that's the thing from what I understood when I read about him is that he, he really wanted to be, a, a, you know, a guitar player, musician, but he wasn't good enough. So but he, wasn't good. He, he just wasn't good enough. And people... I don't want to say ridiculed him, but people kind of like chuckled behind his his back when he said he, he wanted to do this because he just wasn't good enough. And that's when he left to go to the crossroads and he came back. And that's why people were like, oh, my God, all of a sudden you can play. Like What happened? But yeah. And then sort of but after he'd, he'd uh, you know, been married uh, to somebody called, uh, I think, Carrie something. But in 19... 1936, uh, Ernie Ortel of the American Recording Company uh, gave him a contract to go to Texas to record uh, Terraplane Blues and then uh, the record, and then he went on a big tour with Sonny Boy. Um, so there was a sort of peak where he was actually uh, very, uh, fam- you know, very famous and successful. So he turned that around. Absolutely. And, um, and it seems that although he married uh, a Virginia who was 16 and she died in childbirth and mm-hmm. he had an affair with somebody called uh, another Virginia Smith and she had mm-hmm. this child called uh, Claude L. Johnson and then he married somebody else and moved to the... So that child was illegitimate. And then it wasn't until like 92 when the lost... Um, when the... Uh, I forgot what it's, what's the title of it. The complete the complete recording came out in '92, I think. That's okay. When Claude L. Johnson came out of the woodwork and said that he was the illegitimate child of um, uh, Robert uh, Robert Johnson, and it took from like '92 to like two it took like '92 uh, to um, like 2000, so eight years for him to be granted the estate. So right. it took a long time because of the time. It, it kind of reminds me of like the, you know, the like hip hop, like lifestyle where they never get married. They just have kids, Yeah, you know, in the projects and stuff. It was just like this sort of poverty style uh, lifestyle where they just like get women pregnant. So there's no record either. Again, there's no satellites in uh, 1666. There's right. not a very good system for like, you know, nobody knows what's going on. So it took a long time for them to prove uh, that but you know and by by about two thousand he was granted you know it was started to make revenue i think his his uh that album the complete complete recordings made started making money in ninety two and then so he was granted it in two thousand and uh i think in, it was in nineteen ninety eight that the album that I bought, which was the uh, king of the delta blue Singers, yeah. yeah put him on this certain you know put him on this other level of more it seemed a lot more kind of it wasn't just like in music circles suddenly he had a big stand in hmb in the mainstream so it all seemed to be leading to this point where he would be granted you know claude would be claude johnson would be granted the estate right i guess the other the other mystery around uh, robert johnson is the his actual death 
I mean, the you mean getting poisoned by like a jealous husband, you know, on that on that successful tour, he drank from like an open bottle of like poisoned whiskey or something. Was it whiskey? That's what. It, yeah, that's what it said. I mean, he wasn't a drinker he, though, right? No. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he okay. was drinking whiskey. That's what like, in the documentary it says. There's two things he liked: uh, whiskey and women. Right. He was like, uh, he was out of control, and every all these women that died around him said that they just they couldn't keep up with his like spinning lifestyle of touring and drinking, like, and also he's very poor. But yeah, they just drink they drank whiskey like bought by the bar, <laughs> and they, I don't know about heroin though. That's, I always think of heroin as being involved. But... I, heroin's more of a, a jazz thing, isn't it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it was apparently it was it's been disputed as to whether or not it is, but strychnine is the one that's suggested as the poison that was in the whiskey that killed him. Again, this is just a story because it said that he survived that the, the supposed poison. He was very sick for a few days, but he actually died of pneumonia. Ah, that's crazy, so, man. So there's so a mystery around his death, as in the death certificate listed no actual cause. And it just said no doctor, so there wasn't it wasn't straight proof of it being strychnine. Strychnine, but he did it did it almost hurt him. What's really cool about the story is that Sonny Boy Williamson is another blues musician that played with Johnson. He had gotten the bottle that was apparently he had gotten the bottle that was poisoned, and he knocked it out of his hand, saying, "Never take a sip from a from a bottle that you didn't open." Right. And yeah. and then Johnson just replied to him, "Don't ever knock a bottle out of my hand." So sorry. And then soon after, he was offered the poisoned bottle, and he took. So the bottle that he knocked out was not poisoned. Um, but it's just you know whether or not that happened or not, it's 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 appropriate, and it it definitely adds to the legend of Robert Johnson. Yeah. And there's another part of it where this like a blues historian, uh, somebody called Wardlow. Okay. He believes that the actual cause of death was syphilis. Is that Robert Johnson always had syphilis from his parents, and syphilis causes infertility. So he was saying that Claude couldn't ever be the son of Robert Johnson because Robert Johnson was, uh, had syphilis and was infertile. So that that was in court as well, but it got thrown out by the um, the court throughout. And there was a sort of funny quote, as if almost like the court, the the. Supreme Court Justice uh, Mike Mills, he seemed to just be like a, you know, a Robert Johnson fanboy or something. Like, <laughs> so yeah, he kind of quoted the, um, he kind of quoted one of his songs or something in court, saying that you know because his body was never found, so the, the 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 Supreme Court Justice said something. He was buried down uh, by the highway, so his old evil spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. Crazy. That's how they handled it in court. That's <laughs> crazy. Body. So the, the court, the, the guy in court, the you know, the Supreme Court justice was just like, you know, loved Robert Johnson's like mythology back then. <laughs> That's nuts. It, there was in 2006 though. There was a, a doctor by the name of David Connell, or a medical practitioner, I should say, by the name of David Connell. He suggested, like, this guy just threw water on everything. Like, this, I, I, I imagine he's fun to be around at parties because he's he was looking at, at pictures 
and apparently Robert Johnson had unnaturally long fingers and one bad eye. Um, it could have been Marfan syndrome, according to this doctor, and it could have affected his guitar playing, attributed to the death of aortic dissection. So I don't know why yeah. he, he had to come out and, and, you know, throw shade on everything of this wonderful story to just make it logical. I suppose that's what that's what the folk story kind of stuff, folk tales of the uh, the ghost the ghost ship. When you start talking about there's multiple stories and they all just they're all superstitious. That kind of that's kind of a, kind of uh, debunking it, isn't it? Right, uh, right. In the same way as if you could start saying that you know this story about Robert Johnson is all kind of fictionalized by all these like superstitious people, and there were like two, you know two or three different. Robert Johnson's. There was one who was really good at guitar, and maybe the you know the one that you know the one that died was somebody else. I think there was there must have been a, there so, were contracts like the American Recording Company had contracts with him. It wasn't a completely wild west chaotic time, was it? They did have, of course, uh, of course, yeah, they had some form of history, wasn't? It couldn't have possibly just been some random story. And another another thing to add to the the myth of everything is up until the 1980s, there was thought to be no pictures of Robert Johnson. It was only two. Two, yeah. And they found two, exactly, from the 70s. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and he looks really young, you know? It's yeah. Like a little bit like when you're older now, like seeing pictures of, like, Kurt Cobain. Right. Or Morrison, you go, shit, they were like in their 20s. That's right. They were young. They're just like kids. Yeah. But he was even younger, I think, in the pictures that he were taken. It, yeah, because I thought the picture on my, uh, the, out the CD I bought, you know, uh, uh, King of the Delta Blue Singers or something yeah. down at Costco, is some like old guy with a guitar, you know, in a suit, sitting on a wooden chair, I think. It's like a BB King style thing, but he's not. He's not BB King. He was like a little kid. Like he looks like an uh, England football player or something. <laughs> it's even the one that I have. I forget which one. I forget which Robert Johnson album. It, there's there's nobody. Uh, it's just a drawing on the cover, right? So yeah, well, on the um, uh, was it Clapton? Uh, Me and the Devil Blues, his covers album, or Me and Mr. Johnson, the covers album. In the background yeah. of the cover, there's a little kind of port painting, like a Picasso painting. And it doesn't show that he's like a little uh, teenager or a 20-something. But that's another thing, just as the, um, the uh, ghost ship, uh, Flying Dutchman stories became like popular culture, eventually, like, uh, Robert Johnson came into the mainstream. Like, with, when Clapton's doing like a whole like, covers album about him, and his, his versions of the songs are much more, like, uh, accessible. Right. I think Clapton's versions of the songs are, like, a kind of more groovy uh, versions. Actually, the Robert Johnson material stuff is quite hard to, uh, to listen to. <laughs> that's what, yeah. That's, that's one of the things that, like, it was, I remember buying it after all the kind of main bands had come out, and I was almost bored of music. And it was more like a research project to go back to the beginning to find the, you know, the, this devil at the crossroads. You know, it was more like a research than it was like, oh, this is a, 
this is as good as like uh, Nevermind or something. It, it didn't have that same. You know, it was like the next uh, version of uh, Unplugged in New York by uh, Nirvana. It was like acoustic. Right, right, right. You know, it was like as a hair metal fan, I was getting all like <laughs> spiritual. It it's definitely interesting. Did you know that even the exact location of his grave is officially unknown? Yeah, that's what I was saying about that. Uh, the, the court justice, they said right, there was okay. no grave, and then he read that quote saying that you know he was down on the highway so his old evil spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. Like he was, he was right, like, right, right, quoting his lyrics in court saying he's a, he's a free spirit. You know, he's a he's a psyop. It's crazy. What what a what a crazy story this one is, and there's so much to there's so much to go on with this one too, and you know, add the fact in that it's pop culture with music, it just adds to, it just adds to the lore of it. Everybody. Yeah, like, I wanted to say, that, you know, like I got that, the Red Hot Chili Peppers album, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and they cover one of the, his songs on there. And I didn't even know, uh, you know, their Red Hot is actually a Robert uh, Johnson's song. And I remember that being on the album that I bought and thinking this is the best tune. Like the rest of them are kind of start out with the same little, Plinkety guitar, but that that one had a sort of more of a, like a funk, uh, fun, speed, faster vibe to it. So I didn't realize that uh, Chili Peppers covered one of these songs. That's really the pinnacle. Really. Once Absolutely, your song. He's like from '92 hey. to basically, I went with Blood Sugar Sex Magic. He went from like nothing in '92 to. I don't know, when's Blood Sugar Sex Magic? 91. 91. No, 19... 1991. Yeah. Wow, they must have got it off the, the earlier album then. Like, they must have I... found it from an earlier album than uh, lost uh, the, complete work, the complete recordings came out in sure. 92, I think. I mean, it was. So the, so the, the, the song was recorded in 1936, right? It's a, it's a okay. song from 1936. Yeah, yeah. So. Which is really cool. It was released on 78 RPM record. Do you remember those? Uh, I never really bought vinyl. I'm more of like a tape guy. No, like this is this is going to like my 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 father grandfather era. Like this oh, is maybe. 78s are there. My dad had a couple growing up from his dad, and uh, I I always remember them because they're they're kind of thick and they're hard, and they're like easily breakable. They're, and I don't even think record players come with a 78 setting anymore. It's just 3345. And yeah, you had to play it at this super fast speed of 78 uh, RPMs, which is cool. There's even more like that blood sugar sex magic with the way magic is spelt. There's a whole bunch of Illuminati uh, undertones. Alistair Crowley is involved with uh, sex magic. There's there's so much to dive in with that album from the Chili Peppers and the symbolism to uh, the Illuminati and um, what was uh, Crowley's uh, right hand man? What was his name? Coincidence with the two, right? I mean, we're talking about uh, Robert Johnson sells his soul to the devil, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Not Timothy Leary. No, it's uh, Alistair Crowley and uh, Jack Parsons was his name. Oh yeah, Jack Parsons. Yeah, yeah, the Rocket guy. Yeah, yeah, the Rocket guy. Yeah, is that what you said? Yeah, 
I just oh, I thought you said the, the rock guy. guy. The rock guy. Like the, the musician. Like blew oh, no. himself up with a rocket. Yeah, yeah. Jack like, Parsons. That's the guy. <laughs> worked for, didn't he work for NASA? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. And Von Braun. They were all like together. Right, 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 right. Anyway, uh, getting back to Robert Johnson. Uh, cool story. I, I, I enjoyed that story as well. Um, and I, I, I knew a little bit about it before today or before we started talking about this show and you know the 27 club obviously is something is always interesting uh the fact that the the you the point that you brought up is that you know they're also you're looking at them they're also young and yeah uh, there's just so much to go on with this one and um i don't know good stories um do do i believe that people sold their soul to the devil i don't know it's pretty heavy. I read. I just read a book on selling your soul to the devil, and uh, what was it called? I forget what it was called, but it was it was very interesting. It was about a guy. He was basically um, he worked in hell. He was condo- condemned to hell for all eternity, and hell was kind of like your. There was lots of uh, mundane nine to five jobs in hell, and he was doing these one of these nine to five jobs, um, and. Basically, he had worked himself up to a promotion where he would uh, be the guy that would show up when summoned by people. And the book revolves around him trying to get uh, all the souls of one family, because if you were able to do that, you would you would be given another shot on Earth. So uh, good book. Uh, If I could find the name of it, uh, I will. (laughs) I'll I'll say it before the end of the show, but it was good. Put it in the description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me write that down. I was reading a lot of horror books around Halloween, obviously, and that that was one of them that came up. So, uh, so moving on to more selling the soul of the devil. Let's talk about a couple movies that you and I have watched in the past week. About I was thinking about doing the, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones. Sure. Uh, Sympathy for the Devil, because that has uh, some movies connected to it as well. Okay. And, or do you want to do the uh, movies first? No, let's go. Sympathy, take, take okay. it away. Sympathy I, for the Devil. I just, yeah, I just want to. Well, it's actually when we're talking about uh, deals with the devil, uh, obviously, Sympathy for the Devil, the Rolling Stones song came up, but then I realized that uh, there's a book by uh, the Russian uh, author, uh, Bulgakov. Uh, Mikhail Bulgakov, Bulgakov, yeah. yeah. Uh, Master and the Master and the Margarita. Uh, that has a, a kind of deal with the devil in it. And uh, basically, in that book, uh, uh, Satan or, uh, you know, the Elzebub or, you know, a devil like character, like the character in the, the Rolling Stone song called Woolen, comes to like Moscow. And he, he basically terrorizes and trolls all the citizens of Moscow uh, with the rational events and puts on magic shows and stuff. And uh, he's basically a, a satire of he's satirizing the Soviet uh, the Soviet regime at the time, the communist regime. And uh, it was an atheist place. But his book was basically to show that you know with uh, the, the 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 devil is real. That means that God is real. So he was he was brought up very religious, and he said you sort of needed both the God and the devil. So that's what the book is about in general. He kind of rolls around with like, you know, an entourage of freaks. 
You know, the, the famous one is the cat that walks on two legs. But this basically all just shook up the, uh, uh, the, the city of Moscow, and they all began to question themselves. Like, he'd played pranks on, you know, he'd sort of criticize the men for their, for their like, uh, uh, drinking and uh, hedonistic lifestyle and worship of money. And then he'd criticize the women for, like, liking new clothes. But he'd give them the clothes. And then the clothes would vanish on the street, and they'd be naked. So this all just shook up the idea. So the whole city, who, were, who was atheist, suddenly started to believe in the devil, and then they started to believe in God uh, because of that, the possibility of the God. And the, the book, in, in the book, there's this character called the Master, and he's the one who's writing the book. And it's basically a, a book that kind of simply uh, the devil is based upon, with like Pontius Pilate, uh, role in Jesus's execution, uh, and you know he, he's rolling in uh, in tanks, just like the song. I think in the song, the Jagger takes it a little bit further and and says that you know who shot the Kennedys when after all it was me and you. So Jagger kind of expanded it. But in the book, the, the deal with the devil is that uh, Margarita is his mistress, uh, the master's mistress, and and he he kind of. Because his book is not allowed to be published in Moscow, he goes crazy and burns his book, and he ends up in an in a sane, insane asylum. So, so, uh, but Margarita, Margarita, she ends up she meets uh, the devil Wulun at a sort of satanic party, and she does a deal with the devil that she actually starts to host all these like uh, rituals and uh, parties, uh, satanic parties in Moscow, but she gets. Um, she gets the master out of the insane asylum. So that's the devil. That's the deal with the devil that she does. And then the stone song, you know, because it was so banned in Moscow, it was doing the rounds in the 60s counterculture. So Marion Faithful gave Jagger a copy, probably in like 68, 69. And then uh, Bulgakov's widow got the, got the parts of the book published in a magazine. They kind of eventually got this story out. I mean, the, the song is similar uh, in that the, the devil character in uh, Sympathy of the Devil is very charismatic, like Woolen. Uh, you know, he's a man of wealth and taste. He's the rich elite. And the, bit, and the book, and he witnesses the execution of Jesus. That's in the, in, in the song and the book. Uh, and the, the su- suggestion is always that, you know, the devil will, like, tempt people or steals their souls. It's interesting. Uh, you touched upon the fact that the devil has to exist if God exists. I, I've and vice and vice versa. And vice versa, yes, absolutely. They, they play off. They need each other, and they play off each other. So he wasn't a he wasn't a Satanist. The, the writer of the book, he was actually religious, but it was banned in the atheist state of Soviet Union. So his little kind of devil character was there to sort of stir things up. From the Wikipedia page, uh, Bulgakov portrays evil as being as inseparable from our world as light is from darkness. Both Satan and Jesus Christ dwell mostly inside people. Jesus was unable to see Judas's treachery despite Pilate's hints because he only saw good in people. He couldn't protect himself because he didn't know how nor from whom. This interpretation presumes that Bulgakov had his own vision of Tolstoy's idea of resistance to evil through nonviolence by creating this image of Yeshua. It's, I remember this theory from high school. And when we were talking, um, I, I, we were in class talking about 
uh, whether or not God is real. And the teacher had asked, who believes in God? And people put up their hand, obviously. And they said, who believes in the devil? And much less people put up their hand. And this was the message he was trying to convey. Well, if the devil, if God exists, the devil has to exist because there can't be good without evil and vice versa. Yeah. And then throughout the book, the, the, the author Bulgakov, uh, there's lots of incidents where he kind of trolls people or tricks them. There's a magic show where he cuts off the head of the ringmaster. That's all kind of shocking stuff. Or he, he predicts that an alcoholic is going to die soon. Uh, right. So he should live a, you know, a, a short hedonistic life and then he dies. There's all these stories start, but he's kind of spreading this kind of like chaos in the city. But just um, in that book, because of the atheist state, the Soviet Union, just talking about a book, talking about the existence of Jesus was illegal in Soviet Russia. So this book, just talking about the, you know, there's in the book, uh, a kid gets uh, arrested for a poem he wrote just talking about the existence of Jesus. So it was this ongoing thing. And it, the book mirrors his real life, as in he didn't get his book published in, in 1929. So he went kind of crazy and gave up but then brought it back in, in 1931. So, and uh, I think the end of the book, you know, he, 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 because Pontius Pilate kind of did agree with what Jesus was saying, he gives Pontius Pilate a kind of thumbs up and they go and live in, he goes and lives outside the earth in some limbo world. And then, but uh, he doesn't give himself credit because he showed cowardice. And there's some kind of Russian saying that cowardice is the worst vice. So right. the famous saying that came from, comes, it's popular with the Russian people. They like this book because Bogokov criticizes himself for not standing up because he quit in, 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 in 1929. He kind of gave up. So he right. doesn't give himself a happy ending in the book. And then Wuland at the end disappears into the darkness. So that's the end of the book. But the stone song, Jagger's very, at the time, very, um, because of this song, he became, people thought he was the devil. And that is kind of moves into the, that, that the movie performance, uh, with James Fox and Jagger, where there's another deal with the devil, uh, where, you know, James Fox <clears throat> is on the run from some murder. He, he kills the wrong person and the mob, he's the gangster, but the mob are trying to eliminate him rather than help him. And he ends up in like Jagger's, Jagger's playing the devil, basically, in his like, uh, he's a recluse, a rock recluse, who doesn't know what to do with his life and doesn't know how to leave the house. And Fox is looking for somewhere to hide. But they, they basically get him, the, uh, the gangster involved in their kind of 60s uh, mushroom orgies and uh, satanic rituals. And they kind of swap it. Uh, James Fox, very like uh, stri the straight world represented and Jagger's the androgynous, and they kind of they kind of give him a makeover and basically get him dressed in like Keith Richards. <laughs> so at the end of the movie, the gangster looks kind of feminine, and then at the end, there's kind of some deal with the devil, where James Fox uh, shoots Jagger, and uh, and 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 basically assumes his identity, or Jagger steals his soul and becomes uh, James Fox, the gangster, and he escapes with them. He goes with the mob. And James Fox stays in the house, and and he's like, there's some sort of French model there that's gonna like, 
and they're going to go to Persia together. There's a whole like ritual towards the end, uh, through you know the last part, which is very kind of wordy. But it's all about Persia. But they were going to run away to Persia. So the gangster escapes to Persia, and Jagger goes with the uh, mobsters, which maybe was the rest of his career. Like he joined the establishment. Mm-hmm. So that's a quick summary. <laughs> There's quite a few movies. There's definitely a deal there with the devil, if if you go by that analogy, right? Yeah, well, it's because it's a old. I was realizing as I was watching it, because it's like an older movie, they had to be more subtle to make it seem like like they didn't rely on special effects as much. Whereas, like the movie, like uh, Ninth Gate, it's a, a lot more of a sort of polished. They can use like effects and uh, you know different graphics and stuff to make it look believable. But in the in the 60s or the you know the 70s when performance was made, it's very they have to be more subtle, like hint at what actually happens. But yeah, as Jagger drive, as James Fox drives away, the gangster drives away in the uh, gangster limo. Uh, the sh- the last shot is of is Jagger's face, kind of subtle way, way of doing it. Interesting. The Ninth Gate is another one that uh, I, I watched this week. It, it, for those who don't remember, the Ninth Gate has uh, Johnny Depp, and he's a, uh, a, a rare book collector or a rare book investigator. He goes and find he goes and finds rare books for for clients, and he gets hired by this man to go find. It's it's a book that has something to do with the devil, and uh, it's got a, a pentagram, inverted pentagram on the front, and they're supposed to only be three in existence, and they want to find out if his copy is legit and whether or not the other two copies in existence are legit. Anyway, it it, it basically plays out where you know, Johnny Depp is like the rare book hunter, and he's working for that sort of Balkan guy who's like the elite, and he's going around to different people. Uh, looking for uh, these books, like maybe the rich guy has two. He's looking for the third or something like that. But he ends up they find like six or seven of these books, and then Johnny Depp realizes that only three of them are real, something like that. It's so okay, so so his name's Dean Corso. He's a rare book dealer, and he's hired by this man named Boris Balkin. Um, who's acquired The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, a book by the 17th century author Artisdale Torchia. And it's said to be, and you're said to be able to summon the devil through this book. The book has been allegedly written in collaboration with the devils and only three copies have survived. And Balkan believes only one of the three is authentic, so he wants Corso to go inspect to determine if this is true or not. Um, along the lines, along his travels, he meets a, a mysterious woman. It's she's only referred to as the as the girl, and she appears to be following him, which she is. So he goes on. He interviews uh, the widow of one of the other books. Uh, she has no idea that he had sold her. Her now deceased husband had sold um, her copy or his copy of the book, and. Uh, he goes to her. It's playing played by Lena Olin. Um, she's very good in this role because she's very evil in this role, and uh, she she plays it well. There's parts in this movie that is so it, there, there's some weird parts in this movie because and and the first one happens when he meets uh, this woman. They have sex, and then she knocks him unconscious, and then all of a sudden it's the next day, and he's back at home, 
and just little things like that. So there's lots of time missing in this movie. So anyway, he travels on to Spain. Uh, he speaks to the Seniza brothers, and he speaks to the Seniza brothers. They're they're also uh, book restorers who owned uh, one of the copies before, and there's there's definitely some symbolism with these two men uh, in the Bible. The there, there's the the bookkeepers of the Bible, the bookkeepers in the Bible, which are so there there are two twin brothers, and Johnny Depp goes and asks for them. And then, <clears throat> so they're they're accountants actually in in the Bible, and Johnny Depp's to go see these two brothers who are, so it's 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 a biblical reference that they use in a very roundabout way, which I thought was which I thought was 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 interesting. And if you look uh, when you're watching the movie, the face of the brothers, there's a, a, a an illustration in the. Part of a main I'm so all over the place, I'm sorry. Um, one of the main plot points in this movie is that uh, there, there's illustrations in these three books, and the illustrations are all different, uh, very subtly different. Like one has a staff holding in his right hand as opposed to his left hand. And in the in the book where the where he meets the brothers in Spain, one of the brothers' face faces is in one of the illustrations. Now you have to you have to pick it up. Uh, it's it's not pointed out, but it's definitely there. So there's the there's the biblical reference, and then he goes on, finds the other book. Uh, this woman in a wheelchair, she's crippled, but she's she's a very powerful woman, um, and she has the third copy. And no, it's, it's very complicated. But basically, there's all these different collectors, and they all got they've all got these uh, different versions of this book. But Johnny Depp works out that the one with the LCR on the illustration, LCR maybe stands for Lucifer, there's three of those or something. So those That's are the right. three real books. And then there's all these other ones which with the AT. Uh, I mean, I've only ever watched the movie, but I've watched it a few times. But I've only ever watched it. I've never read anything about it. Uh, but yeah, he goes around to all these different people. And they all think that they have the real copy, and he he doesn't care. He's like a mercenary, Johnny Depp. That's he's right. Being tracked, he's being tracked by the girl on the motorbike, and he thinks that it's it's the rich elite guy who hired him, that he's hired her to follow him around, but actually she is she's helping him independently of Vulcan. That's right. That's, that's, that's right. What, that was the main thing in the movies, uh, apart from all the different people like those two. The Bible guys, you're talking, they're the ones that look like the Mario Brothers. Yeah, they look exactly like the Mario <laughs> Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those guys. But there's all different characters. The woman in the wheelchair, and then there's that evil witch woman who gets, like, they all think that they're going to get find this book, and then it's gonna, they're going to meet the devil and become immortal. Yeah, the, that, evil, yeah. that evil witch woman, that's, that's uh, uh, Lena Olin. She's, she's yeah. the widow. And she, yeah. she's, she's a monster. She, there's, yeah. she's a monster. That's another well, thing that, in this movie. Sorry, go on. No, just in, in the, uh, they have this sort of satanic ceremony, don't they? Towards the end. It's At like the eyes very wide end. shut. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah after watching the movie a few times, I mean, it's quite, it starts out quite simple, but it gets kind of complicated. Yes. And it, they cover quite a lot. But in the, yeah, just in that ceremony, when Vulcan turns up and starts saying, you're all losers, I'm the real guy. I've got the real book. I'm going to find Satan or whatever. And she attacks him. The way she attacks is like a, uh, a demon or something, right? She bites. 
And it's the same way. It's the exact same way that she attacks Johnny Depp earlier on the movie, right before they have sex. She's she's a monster. Yeah. And and when you go on, then when she when she does have sex with him, it's like she's eating him or something. But also when they're when they're done, they wake up the next morning. uh, She's like kind of all right. But Johnny Depp's on the floor and he's like covered in sweat, covered in sweat, torn torn to pieces. And she's just, you know, the same, really. Still got a dress on, but he's like ravaged. Exactly. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a funny movie in a way when you watch and, it a few times. It's not just all dark and scary. It's, you know, it's still Hollywood Johnny doing all his true. acting and pulling faces and stuff. But yeah. Um, and there's, there's a very funny line in, in that, in that uh, scene too where she asks him about... And having sex, and he's like, oh, "I thought we already did." In typical Johnny Depp fashion, yeah. So, when when at the very end, when, when you were talking, when when um, Balkan comes in and she attacks Balkan, if you notice, and this is also done with the with the girl on Johnny Depp, which is another scene that I'm going to talk about right after. But she leaves the 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 mark of the beast on Balkan, which is so. If, if you've ever drank a Monster Energy drink, you know it has those three scratches. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the Hebrew mark of the beast, right? I don't yeah. know. And also, that. she has like a weird snake tattoo on her. That's back, right. Which turn, maybe turns up in the book. So the, the motorbike. What I realized, like only I've seen the movie like ten times or something, just randomly watching it. I never really understanding it. I started to think. I don't know if this is you agree with this. Is the movie actually the story that's in the book? And Johnny Depp is just the character in the the story of the book. One hundred percent. That's what I thought. Seems to be the motorcycle girl seems to be the actual book. Th- that's what I thought. Seems to be in the book. I don't know. That's what I thought. I, yeah, I was thinking that as well. That he's living out the book. She the there's a couple weird scenes too with that girl, the motorcycle girl, like the very where he where Johnny Depp's gets a tap attacked uh, right by that staircase in the city. She you can see her. She floats down. Oh, yeah. She doesn't she doesn't walk down the stairs. She floats down. But it's very subtle. And unless you're paying attention to the movie, you're not going to notice that she does that. She also floats down in that ending scene where they're having that satanic ritual. She's she remember she Johnny Depp goes down to the the floor to because he has the the robe on so he can cover himself up to, to, to not be seen. And she stays up on top on the second level, which is funny because all anyone had to do would be look up and they would see her. It's very comical because Johnny Depp yeah. takes all these precautions to, to make himself hidden. But yet she's just walking in plain sight on the second level of this open auditorium so and then yeah and she's making basically she says to him he says he says something to her and she says yes you're part of it that's right that's right she's she's basically orchestrating all this protecting him leading him to the final point she even knows the balkan is gonna burn because she hasn't got the right book that's right i'm only just realizing this now but she's the one that and she has that scene where she has a little bit of a red weird red lip or something so and that's what I was going to get into next. Exactly. She has a bleeding nose. It's it's from right after that fight where she floats down from that staircase and Johnny Depp this guy is it's the it's the the blonde-haired guy 
it's the black guy with blonde hair. I mean, I'm, you're not supposed to say that, but that's that's who he is in the in the movie. Like they refer to him as as the black guy yeah. with blonde hair. Um, he is attacking Johnny Depp and he gets away, but she protects Johnny Depp. She basically um, beats him up, and they get back to the hotel and Johnny and she has a bleeding nose and it's ridiculous what happens next because she's just got this little little drop of blood on her upper lip and she she wipes it away but then the next scene all you see is her hand on Johnny Depp's face and she's again putting the mark of the beast on his forehead she's got these three fingers of blood which is way too much blood that to what she she picked off off her own face. Johnny's Depp's face is covered in blood now, and they have to get out of the hotel. And Johnny Depp is running around the the lobby of the hotel with this with this blood on his forehead. It's again, it's it's almost comical. But yeah, and he, it is comical because he doesn't actually know that he he's actually thinks that he's like a a mercenary book dealer who's just looking for the book and doesn't care. Like he, at some point, he laughs at one of the the. Uh, uh, the book dealer type people who say it's a story about the devil or something. That's right. And he laughs at yes. But then, but he doesn't actually realize that he's caught up in this story. He's just uh, going along with it, it seems. He only starts to twig onto it later, in the much later in the movie. That's right. That's right. It's it's an interesting movie, and I th- I... Oh, and then also there's the there's the sex scene at the end where the girl. So, again, with your reference that he's living the story, um, there's there's a, a fan. Let me pull it up here and I'll read it. So. There's a fan theory about this movie that the the girl with the green eyes is the whore of Babylon, which makes Corso the beast. Corso being Johnny Depp, of course. Um, One of two beasts, but not death, right? Which is one of the two. So, which means at the end, he essentially brings on the end of the world by opening the gate for Lucifer to come in. Balkan is a false prophet, like you alluded to, Wasted, who will burn with the beast in a lake of fire for eternity once the new satanic empire rises and ultimately fails. And it's important to note that the film uses its own made-up version of theology, but the way she is depicted in the engraving pretty strongly suggests that she's the whore. Because, like I said earlier, the two Mario brother guys, the brothers, I said one of his faces was in one of the illustrations. If you look at the very end, where Johnny Depp and the, 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 the girl are, she is also... In the, that illustration of yeah, his book, a, an and that's her face in the book, isn't that an illustration in the book of them where she's riding him? That's right. And then yes. she recreates it with Johnny Depp. Yeah, and then when she's riding him, her they focus in on her face, and it it's it seemingly changes very subtly, but then goes back to her, and then changes again, and then goes back to her. So, um, yeah, I glow. And her eyes glow, exactly, yeah. And she sort of turns into like a serpent or a demon or something. Yeah, so she's the whore then, of Babylon, yeah. And that's, and, there, and that's right in front of that castle thing. That's right, yeah. The castle where they did the, put the, they did the, the uh, you know, the guy burnt himself with the book, hoping Vulcan burnt himself. Who was the false prophet, the yeah. False prophet. And then 
and then basically the end of the movie is that I think uh, you know Johnny Depp is he doesn't Walking talk into about it. it much. He walks into it up up the the kind of ladder to the ninth gate, which is open for him because he has three books. That's and right. We created the 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 engravings in the book. That's right. And he's essentially book. brought on the end of the world by yeah. walking and into he, the ninth gate. Exactly. And if you look at him, he's got like a goatee, like a Satanist. Or he looks different. You're right. He looks different. At that point in the movie, his character changes throughout the movie. Again, very subtly. But once you once you see it, you can't unsee it. And yeah, at the end of the movie, his his hair is is a little bit grayer. It's not as slick as it was, and he's got the goatee. That's right. So it's, it's quite a, it's quite a fun movie, but it's also uh, quite good. It's Polanski, isn't it? It's Roman Polanski. He co-wrote so, it. Yeah. Yeah. So his famous. I think he directed. Or is he not allowed to? I don't know. But, he, you know, it's not his most famous movie, but it has. It is a. It is a kind of. It reminded me of like Chinatown here and there. Right. You know, like uh, Johnny Depp is kind of like playing the Jack Nicholson character. He's like a detective going around. Right. And he's uncovering the the darkness behind everything. Absolutely, absolutely. What What was Polanski famous for? Was Was he the Satanic Verses? That uh, was uh, Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Rosemary's uh, Baby is the one, but I I don't know much about that one. I, I, I don't actually know that much about uh, Ninth Gate. I just watched it so many times. Uh, but yeah, Ro Chinatown is the classic uh, Polanski, in my opinion. But he's like Woody right. Allen. Oh, so, movies are good. Sorry, I got I sorry, I got him mixed up with Salman Rushdie. I don't know why I said the sat satanic verses. But yeah, I mean, he's isn't Roman Polanski. Didn't he do like Lolita? He's he was arrested, wasn't he? For yeah, he. That's what I'm saying. I don't know whether he's allowed to direct, but he may have made this money. He's all right. He's in. He's hiding out in France, in Paris. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got arrested, but he got me tooed back in the day, and he ran away uh, to Paris. And Weinstein kind of. He's Weinstein's hero in real life. Weinstein really liked, you know, liked him. Um, but he's the same kind of. He got done, but like. You know, something like that in a in a jacuzzi, you know, back in the sixties or seventies. Right. Um, and it's a bit of a, it's like the first Me Too thing. But he's he's fine. He's in Europe, in in Paris or something. So maybe he did direct it, and but he's all right in working in Europe. So that's why he makes all his movies in Europe now. Uh, right. He's most famous. Most people know him for Rosemary's Baby, which I think is like the, the baby being born is is the devil or something. Like I don't think I've, I don't think I've, I've only seen it once, yeah. but that is the most famous. Chinatown is probably his most famous movie. I think. I would say so. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, as in, you, everybody can watch it. Whereas Rosemary's Baby is like a horror. Yeah. Yeah. 1968 psychological horror film. I I don't think I've ever seen Rosemary's Baby. To be honest with you, though. No, I, know I, the, I know the premise of the, the movie. Soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack. I've listened to the soundtrack and maybe seen the movie, but it's like a horror movie. It's supposed to be, it's kind of terrifying, I think. She, who's in it? Who's in it? I think, uh, what's her name is in it? I think that's why I don't like it. Mia Farrow is in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole kind of conspiracy world. Mia Farrow, um, Woody Allen, yeah. uh, Polanski, all kind of like fit together you know, for some people. 
Ben Weinstein is also kind of uh, Polanski. I think, uh, you know, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie, uh, that's Polanski. Polanski's in that with, uh, you know, Margot Robbie is playing uh, Sharon Tate. Right. So uh, Polanski's always been linked up with this sort of satanic Hollywood, which is why right. he's made Ninth Gate. <laughs> I think Ninth Gate is like a fun, is a fun, fun movie just to watch. Like uh, Johnny Depp does has has these little bits of you know Johnny Deppery, like with the taxi driver. You know the the Indian taxi driver that's yeah. driving him around. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. The taxi driver is like very happy that he's getting this massive like he's waiting in all these phone boxes and stuff, and and Johnny Depp is like doing all his like eye, eye rolls and grimaces and stuff it's, and, and there's lots of good like uh, nudity if you're just watching it randomly <laughs> i mean it's, it's only like five minutes before that evil evil witch is like ravaging him that's true yeah there's so right at the Very beginning early, there's yeah. <laughs> yeah right at the beginning there's a there's a good there's a good couple minutes and then right at the end when uh the whore of babylon is riding johnny depp they focus on her I mean, the the shot is of her face, but I'm not focusing on her face. I'm focusing a little bit down, looking at her breasts because they're equally as beautiful. Uh, same with um, performance. Uh, Jagger with uh, Anita Pattenberg in the bath, and uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, nudity in that as well. So I was saying to you before we started recording that I didn't get through the movie, but the the opening scene of the movie uh, is wonderful. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that. You don't want to watch it with your like pretending it's like some kind of. Uh, it, I mean, it's almost almost like a porn. Well, yeah, that's. <laughs> I had to turn it off because um, I have kids in the house, and they they all came downstairs right when this was happening, and I was like, okay, well, time to turn this off. <laughs> and it's got a, a really cool soundtrack. Um, you know, the the uh, performance soundtrack has Ry Cooder on it. Because uh, because Keith Richards, uh, you know, he didn't want to be involved in it because Jagger is, uh, you know, in that bath scene with Anita Pattenberg. So they had a falling out about, I think it seems like to me that in that movie, uh, Keith Richards was supposed to be like James Fox, the gangster, and maybe Bowie was supposed to be involved as well, maybe. Like they might, they might have thought about using those two guys, but they all nobody wanted to do it other than Jagger. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it wasn't there something to do with the soundtrack and Keith Richards not wanting because yeah, he, he was mad at, at Mick Jagger. Yeah, he didn't do it. So Ry Cooder did it. Yeah, so then right, he, then he got Ry Cooder. Yeah, so Jagger released a video for Memo Memo from Turner. Turner's the reclusive rock star, and he dresses up like a lawyer or something. Uh, Memo from Turner. It's almost like um, a, a sympathy for the devil too. Okay. Memo from Turner. It's and the soundtrack. It also has Gone Dead Train, which Izzy Stradlin covered a few years ago. That's uh, right. I was going to say that's an Izzy Stradlin song. I didn't know that was a Stone song. It's not a Stone song. It's uh, from the it's uh, Rykuda and uh, Jagger on the performance soundtrack. Oh, so it's like a Rykuda. You know Rykuda? I don't really know that much about Rykuda. Actually, I, I, I know Rykuda. Is Rykuda the one who did Paris, Texas? Ah, Ry Cooter. A, I know. Yeah, anyway, I know Ry he's a, a singer. Famous guy. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the soundtrack and it. 
what I noticed is that even back in the 90s when I got it, is that it has a very modern, like contemporary, like atmospheric sound that even like electronic artists don't seem to be able to to get. Like on that on that soundtrack, there's a lot of. Um, I think even one of the one of the songs, I think Kanye West for his song "Who Survived in America" or "Who Will Survive in America." I'm pretty sure he st- steals something from. Uh, he samples that uh, song, the wake up the wake up song on that soundtrack. But there's a lot of weird atmospheric tracks, which are like voodoo style. Right. In that soundtrack, there's a lot of humming distortion sounds when in Jagger's like uh, lair. So the soundtrack is really, I listen to the soundtrack more than I watch the movie. Cause I remember the movie being kind of like British realism, like, but actually it's much cooler than that. When I watched right. it, it's not right. just a boring movie. It's actually quite, quite good. It started out as a bomb, I think. Like, performance didn't do that well. But over the years, the British, like, film establishment have accepted it as, like, one of the most important movies of the 70s or something. Hmm. Because it, so I think, I think uh, Ry Cooter, uh, he does three songs on the, on the soundtrack. Um, yeah. yeah, he does three songs. Does he do Memo from Turner? Or is that just somebody else? Uh, no, that's Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Oh well, I didn't. Even, so Keith Richards is actually on it. So it basically, is a Stone song. Yeah. So he yeah. did the song, but he wouldn't go to the set or be in the movie. Okay. Because Jagger was like, you know, having with uh, Anita Passenberger in the bath, and there's okay. also sort of. Hold on a sec. I, I clicked on it more because on the on the page for performance, it says Keith Richards, Mick Jagger. But if you click on the song. It's a solo single by Mick Jagger featuring slide guitar by Ry, Roy, Ry Cooter. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Because yeah, okay. I'm pretty right. sure uh, Richard uh, was out on that one. He, he wasn't going even going to the set, and he wouldn't do the movie. Wouldn't do the sound. Maybe, maybe Keith think. Richards has a writing credit on it. Yeah, oh yeah, maybe he wrote something on it. Yeah, but he didn't play on it. That's right, right, right. Yeah. But it's quite. It's a, it's, it, I don't think it's actually on the, in the movie. I was waiting for it to come on, uh, you know. But the, there is a video. It's on YouTube. The, it's right. almost like Simpsons, the Devil too. The right. Jagger, like, attending, basically saying how he's gonna, you know, you know, everybody works for me type of thing. So, do you want to go on to our last movie, or do you want to? Uh, we, we're uh, we're well over our time limit, but we can keep going if you want. I think we've done, I mean, the Ninth Gate stuff is a good solid finish. I don't know. Uh, the next one, the next one we could do is um, Angel Heart. Yeah. Um, do, you, can you, do you know much about that? I didn't get to see it because um, I, yeah, I didn't get around to seeing it. I've seen it before, like a year ago, and I kind of know the plot, as in, you know, like the basic plot that, you know, Mickey Rourke is playing the uh, plays like Harry Hart, who's a detective, and then yeah. uh, Johnny Favorite is a crooner in New Orleans who sold his soul to the devil, to, so he's become That's a right. famous crew. That's right. Uh, but I think in the plot, uh, Johnny Favorite uh, re- kind of reneges on the bargain with the devil and doesn't sell his soul to the, doesn't give him his soul. He goes on the run. He like kills yes. a soldier, goes to war, gets, you know, 
his face mangled up, disfigured. Then he comes back and he goes into some kind of hospital. And then uh, De Niro, uh, basically Louis Cipher, the anagram of or <laughs> Lucifer, basically gets yeah. him out of the hospital and brings him back. Uh, gets him out of hospital, and then he then he basically changes his his new name is like Harry Hart, and he's a, he's a detective. And Louis Cipher uh, De Niro wants him to go look for Johnny Favorite. Uh, that's, that, that's exactly story. what happens. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's exactly what happens. And there, there's a fan theory on that as well. Is that uh, that's that Mickey Rourke. Um, is actually in hell, and that's just Lewis Cipher, i.e., um, Lucifer, who's played by like you, you, like you said, Robert De Niro. Is that's that's his way of of more. That's his hell, basically, that he's given him. Is that he just puts him in this constant loop, because Mickey Rourke, at the end of the movie, Mickey Rourke is is screaming, um, "I know who I am! I know who I am!" And he gets on the elevator to go down, and that's. Uh. Yeah, starting back over again. What right? I understood. Oh yeah, he's going down. In, yeah, he's going down into hell because he's just had his uh, soul stolen. Finally That's right. By, and then, and then it starts the all thing, over again. Exactly. Yeah, but the thing, the thing that I didn't understand is that Johnny's favorite uh, is actually Harry Hart. So they don't show in the movie that there's Johnny favorite as a crooner who sells who sells his soul, but basically turns into Harry Hart. So Harry, right. Harry Hart, when he's looking in the mirrors, he's, he doesn't realize that he's actually, he's actually like looking for himself. Like right. basically like Fight Club, where it's an identity thing, where he doesn't realize that he's actually Harry Hart. And Harry Hart, I th- he's, not, he's actually Johnny Favorite, who's, who's come back, but I'm not sure why he's come back to meet with uh, Louis Cipher uh, as Harry Hart. He's being called back because he's like he doesn't know that he's Johnny Favor. That's right, and that's that's the cycle. That's that's his hell. Is that that's his cycle? Is that once he's yeah. in that elevator going down, the movie starts over again? Yeah, and so that the base and the thing with the so when uh, Mickey Rourke, Harry Hart uh, has with uh, Lisa Barnet, Lisa Barnet is actually. Uh, Johnny Favorite and uh, Evangelina Proudfoot. Proudfoot. Daughter. Yes. And uh, Bonnet is Proudfoot. Uh, but I forgot, Epiphany Proudfoot. So he's actually having with his daughter. That's right. At the end of the movie. And then when right. the baby is born, it seems to just, the, the baby's eyes glow. So it seems to be suggesting that the baby is kind of Satan's baby. And, Rosemary's uh, baby? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know, it's, it's basically like De Niro's or Louis Cipher's baby. Exactly, it's, it's the same kind of. But I noticed with all these movies, they're either I don't really understand all these references because of you know the Bible or the Satan stuff. I don't really understand them all clearly, or they're all somewhat ambiguous. My performance is ambiguous a little bit. Ninth Gate is ambiguous. Uh, and Angel Heart is ambiguous a little bit, or like not it's, very, not completely clear. But it might so, be me. So, so, so is the Flying Dutchman, and so is Robert Johnson. There's ambiguity in all four of our stories we covered tonight. Yeah, and all, I mean, all the movies are actually like folk, 
folklore, aren't they? They're the examples of folklore. Absolutely. I will say that I enjoyed the Ninth Gate more than than uh, Angel Heart. I think Angel Heart was a little. I don't know, like uh, what's his face there, Mickey Work. He he plays a good role in it. I think this is Mickey Work at the height of Mickey Work before he turned into weird Mickey Work. Work. You know, he he plays that gumshoe detective very well in the movie, and the whole ambiance of the movie the whole feeling of the movie is very uh 1950s uh private eye right yeah i mean i just i really, just don't think it was as well done as the ninth I game think, i think it's just it's almost like uh almost like luck that movie if it had been big he would have been a bigger star in a different way he wouldn't have done he wouldn't have had to go on and do like the was it the marlboro man and do all those sort of like oh, yeah. action, you know. But I think I think it to me it was like a crossover transition movie where it was it was too nineties when it came out as eighty nine. It was too nineties and dark and gritty for the time. But for the nineties, it was too eighties. Like it's a right. little bit cheesy because you remember Rick, Mickey Rourke from like Diner, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Diner movie and his early movies. That's right. So they're more like. Um, so you remember him from that and all the, um, you know, is it nine and a half weeks yet? He always does like, uh, like basically soft porn movies in the 80s. Yeah, don't forget, but uh, as, don't forget Rumblefish, right? Yeah. I mean, he did I remember him from Rumblefish and the Pope of Greenwich Village, of course. Sorry. And the Wild, uh, Wild Orchid is the classic from the 90s. That's right. Like nine and, and, and that's, weeks. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he kind of ended up doing that kind of thing where I think if, uh, Angel Heart taken off, that uh, being a bigger movie, and he might have, you know, had been able to get different roles, like more serious roles. He always seemed to be fighting because he ended up in a feud with De Niro for some reason. So De Niro cut him out of all the Hollywood stuff. Really, I didn't know that. Really, I can't remember. I can't remember exactly why, but it was something to do with the movie uh, Angel Heart. But De Niro didn't uh, take direction. And uh, and wouldn't talk to Mickey Rourke in the in the making of it. Oh. Um, he was just being kind of like a you know a kind of method actor or something, like yeah. eating those boiled eggs. That was his. He wanted to like I suppose project a sort of scary image to the whole set. Uh, That's that um, kind of backfired in a way because uh, Mickey little, Rourke ended up not liking him because Mickey Rourke's more like a sort of blue collar. Isn't sure. Doesn't want to be put down to by De Niro. That's uh, that's also a very talked about, famous scene in that movie where um, Robert De Niro um, is eating hard-boiled eggs and offers one to. So there, there's I, I I did some digging on that scene too because every time you type in Angel Heart on any search engine it would always go on to complete it with boiled eggs. So I did some digging on that. So the the boiled egg, or the egg, I shouldn't say the boiled egg, but the egg is supposed to be, a, it's a symbol of life, right? And it's a symbol of the soul. Of the soul, yeah. And there was, there's some fan theories out there saying that at that point in the movie, that's Lucifer playing tricks with Mickey Rourke 
and he's he's offering him his soul back. But Mickey Rourke has this weird fear of chickens in the movie, which also could be attributed to um, voodoo and how his soul was taken. Because there was some talk that, well, it takes place in New Orleans, some of it, and they said that voodoo was a part in how the devil obtained his soul and uh, chicken feet are often used in, in voodoo ceremonies. So that could be where his fear of chickens came from. And Lucifer, knowing this, offers Mickey Rourke a way out of this horrible cycle that he's in or his, his, basically his hell that he's in. If he, if he says yes to having an egg, he gets his soul back and therefore is out of hell. But he doesn't. He yeah. says no every time, right? Ah, uh, but I'm sure in the movie, I thought it was like De Niro was like mocking him, or like you know, just just showing you know without Mickey Rourke knowing, he was saying, "I'm going to eat your soul." Because at that point, he hadn't actually taken Mickey Rourke's soul. That's why See, you know that's why he was chasing him down. He wanted, but there is a point in the movie where Mickey Rourke somewhere towards the middle towards the end. Mickey Rourke eats an egg in his truck or something. So there's a lot of like uh, references to it. It's not. It, it doesn't necessarily make any sense. <laughs> it's <laughs> like it's like image. It's maybe just image. You know, like imagery or symbolism that the director put in or the writer. It might not be lit, you know, literally makes sense. But I remember like didn't uh, Lisa Bonet get in trouble for the uh, for the voodoo scene because she goes kind of crazy doing some blood ritual with chickens or something yeah and then and then cosby cosby didn't want her to do the movie after because of the sex scene with uh, mickey rourke which is kind of funny now because cosby at the time was like drugging and raping people <laughs> and he was saying he lisa bonnet can't can't kiss mickey rourke on tv you know on that's right movie. my wife and i took the around halloween my wife and i took um our kids to a, a haunted house and it's one of those haunted houses where you walk around and, you know, you go from room to room and and whatever. And in one of the rooms, my wife looks at me and, and she goes, this is the scariest thing in this haunted house. And she points down to the Bill Cosby book that's on the coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> the Bill Cosby is like a, a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. Like a punch, a special punch that you drink at Halloween. <laughs> what's the what's that meme if it's it's bill cosby and he's all fuzzy and he's like if you see this it's too late <laughs> yeah and at, the, at the time he was like keeping his uh you know family man image up and oh yeah that wanted to leave the cosby's you know or if she went off to lisa bonnet went off to uh do a movie he would like go out in the press and say she shouldn't do it she's Ruining, you know, the Cosby's or something. Unreal when you think of it, but it's a, yeah, the, it's a different that whole scene. That it's whole, a different like, world now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that whole movie <laughs> set with De Niro and Rourke and Lisa Barnet and Cosby, and there's a massive because uh, it was they wanted to give it an R rating for some reason. No, they wanted to so, give it an X rating. X rating, yeah. But yeah. Uh, Alan Parker he said it was just like this. It was like a. It was. I think it was. Maybe it took a year to come out. It was a year late. Mm, yeah, it, as well. yeah um, 
they well they spent uh a longer than normal time uh just editing it to get it um uh to get it down to an R rating from the original X rating, right? I think they they spent about four months editing in Europe, uh, which is how yeah. long is the thing? You all can leave the It's it's <laughs> not that long, like but it's it's graphic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you like you you see thrusting, like you don't see penetration, but you definitely see thrusting. You know what I mean? Like it's. It's it's pretty it's pretty uh, it's pretty graphic. I mean that was his thing. Like he basically did all the nine and a half weeks. He did that and he did Wild Orchid as well. That was maybe later. All those that came out after, before. yeah. Part yeah. of the uh, And then Lisa by name, I think she ended up marrying um, Lenny Kravitz. So she, the Lenny yeah. Kravitz album, Mama said, is all about her basically. Uh, you know, always on the run. Yeah, that's not really about her. But the, most of the other tracks are. She's kind of like the Stephanie Seymour of uh, Mama said. There you go. All right, wasted. I think uh, I think we've I think we've run our course on this topic. I think we had a good one tonight. I lost my shit there for a while. Um, I don't know what happened. I just completely went blank. I think I'm I, I think, think I'm out of practice. Think it doesn't really. Make, I don't think it will be made much difference because it's all just uh, it's a podcast, isn't it? True. Uh, it's, uh, that's what that's what podcast people listen. They want to see behind the scenes. They want to see how the uh, how the cookies made. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> there you go. All right. Yeah, I think it was only uh, a couple of seconds. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like an eternity for me because I was sitting there saying, "What the hell's going on?" But um, yeah. So, um, how's the wasted show going? Um, it's okay. I also did a sort of, uh, I think maybe it was like a hangover from Halloween, but I suddenly decided that Susan Sarandon is a, like a Hollywood witch. And oh. then, and then there was this story that after I'd done it, you know, she, she hung out, she was at uh, Timothy Leary's, um, funeral and she drank his ashes. It was like a true story. So she's always been in this sort of satanic, uh, role, uh, in, from her early life. Uh, Susan Sarandon, you know, she did Thelma and Louise, but then she's in Hollywood. She's always been a sort of kind of uh, in these devil movies like Witches of Eastwick. Uh, and then this story came out where uh, her 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 son has been on uh, in the in the media complaining that um, uh, everybody's posting uh, videos of her boobs on YouTube, and he yeah, wants them to I, stop. Yeah, I saw that. I think it's something to do with the Israel Hamas conflict. She was like talking about it randomly and she got herself in, in trouble. And then everybody started posting pictures of her boobs online. Because <laughs> that's what the internet does, right? When somebody, when yeah. somebody does something controversial, well, let's just post naked pictures of them. That's great. And why not? No, Susan's not even naked. It. It's just that they're very big. So any picture you take of her, they've got, she's got these huge like cannons. Oh yeah. So anyway, that's why that's on uh, the wasted show, and also uh, Broski Rose had uh, covered the Axel Rose and uh, uh, Fernando um, rape allegations from a Christian perspective. I think so. That's okay. also an episode on there. Okay, we were uh, we're supposed to get Broski on here to do a show with us, so we're going to get that happening. Hopefully, next show he'll be on. Um, yeah, I think he. 
he can go at any time. He doesn't really need to do any research. <laughs> He's already <laughs> known this. All right. So the Wasted Show is is uh, on Rumble again. Are you still on YouTube with the Wasted Show? Uh, a few. I put a few episodes on YouTube. Um, like I, I put one. Uh, I've forgotten what it was about. Maybe not the Susan Sarandon one. Right. I, I did, I did I'm. Uh, of- I'm actually looking to uh, go to Rumble exclusively. I've been doing some stuff behind the scenes here at scratch tracks productions and to get monetized on rumble is much easier than it is on YouTube. And I've applied for it and I've been approved. So we'll see what happens. Uh, there's still some stuff I have to go through. So things are happening behind the scenes here at the no name pod. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with that, but stay tuned for more. Because we're we're always here, and don't forget the wasted show. Find that on Rumble and YouTube. Uh, don't forget our show uh, available anywhere: YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcast. Uh, please give us a five star, or give us a rating, or hit like if you can. I'd appreciate that. I think wasted would too. But uh, stay tuned for more because we're always here. And I had a really good time tonight. It was been a, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked. So uh, I always enjoy uh, getting together and the banter back and forth between us. But I, I think we covered the topic well tonight. And uh, it was fun. What would you think? Yeah. The, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And on that note... <laughs>